Journal. Uh, joining me today on the podcast are Jacob Corey, uh, Matt Pavlik, and Sam Craven. And our topics today uh, are going to include a recap of uh, Star City Baltimore, and we're going to talk about some upcoming events. Uh, we're going to touch on kind of the evolution of the Deathblade deck, where they came from, uh, what the components are, and we're going to wrap up with a reaction uh, about Modern Masters, which hit recently. And um, it's our second episode, and uh, if you listen to our first one, we apologize for any of the technical difficulties. I, I understand the sound quality wasn't quite there, but uh, we were working hard um, using underpaid offshore labor to make sure that this uh, podcast has higher quality sound. So thanks for coming back. And also Sean uh, O'Brien is uh, your announcer here today. That's right, I'm Sean O'Brien. Let's dive right in. Star City Baltimore. Um, we actually got to see a Legacy Open two weeks back-to-back, which is uh, pretty exciting. Uh, pretty good event, 280 players. Um, and we actually saw Blue-Black Tesserator win the whole uh, the whole pie. Uh, no, that was the most recent. Baltimore was S for Deathblade. Oh, well, I'm a week behind. St. Louis, that is the event I'm looking for. Yes. St. Louis, Baltimore, it, it's really all the same, you know. It's, it's fine. I'm just happy to be able to watch Legacy on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, there was uh, the, the previous week in Baltimore, uh, just to touch on, was I think almost half Sneak Show variants, right? Uh, with an Omnitel and a couple of Sneak Yeah, shows. quite a few of them, yeah. We had a, a strict contrast this week. I think one Sneak Show uh, made it in. Um, but, yeah, as Jacob pointed out, the, the St. Louis uh, was won by Blue Black Tezzeret uh, with Force and Chalice by Chris Anderson. Also notable, we had no brainstorms in the final. That is a pretty big... Um... Pretty big deal, considering the rest of top eight included brainstorms. And I think you look at uh, you look at the list with with uh, the both both lists are trying to punish decks that uh, that live off of uh, cantrips like that. Obviously, with with the Tesserator deck trying to position the Chalice on one, uh, with Death and Taxes being kind of a mana denial deck, uh, trying to get a Thalion play as quickly as possible. Um, so both have pretty good matchups. Uh, against traditional blue decks. I mean, and then punishing all these decks further that are just cantripping to high heaven to try and get what they need to get. I mean, this deck is running... I mean, this Tezzeret deck could be running Abysses, but it's not, which makes me sad. However, they are running Lodestone Golem, which is like the absolute tits against anything playing, you know, cheap cantrips. Chalice plus Lodestone Golem? Have fun. Like, I would not want to play against this if I was running, like, Rug Delver or some other deck like that. I would consider Lodestone Golem the um, the mud version of Thalia. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, the, the the list he's got here has an interesting uh, number of one-ofs, um, and the reason he can run those one-ofs uh, is because of Transmute Artifact. Uh, he also has some card movement with Thirst, and obviously the Planeswalkers. Um, but I think you can see him kind of, although he doesn't have access to traditional cantrips, uh, he can get at his one ofs and two ofs um, through the number of tutors he has, and he has card movement from from transmute, thirst, and then uh, Tezzeret, of course, which is in place on a stick. I think transmute is really interesting in this deck because I mean, like, transmute is not 
sacrifice, you know, when you cast Transmute Artifact. It's if Transmute Artifact resolves, then sacrifice your garbage mana signet whatever to go for, you know, if you wanted to, like your Baleful Strix or for your Ensnaring Bridge or if you were running like Worm Coil Engine or something, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, and if you don't pay the mana difference, it goes to the graveyard. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's some possibility for some, like, Grixis Goblin Welder action. Like, like I, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, it does bin the artifact. It even has the um, the Fopter Foundry and sort of a meat combo to sustain against aggressive decks and even just overwhelm other control decks, which is kind of innovative in, in its own. Well, we saw it, you know, years ago with the Enlightened Tutor package blue-white control deck that would run that as a, as a finisher, and that kind of fell out of favor, uh, I think, around the time Stoneforge Mystic became more popular, right? Um, you know, that was kind of the finisher of choice. I mean, it's it it's even um, innovative with the use of transmute artifact. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's been it's been tried before. I think in an environment where um, you know there's a little bit less force of will. If you want to look at some of these Esper lists and Esper Deathblade lists, that the actual net number of counter spells now is uh, you know is a little bit lower than it was in the past. Nobody's running spell snare. Um, and as Matt pointed out, anyway, it's a it's a low risk play because if it's countered, it's countered. So, no card loss. Sam, what do you think? Well, uh, I didn't actually get to watch much of the uh, much of the tournament because I was at work all day Sunday. But what I did see, my favorite part of watching Tesserator was the unfortunate soul who asked if he could read Transmute Artifact. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen what Transmute Artifact looks like, it's got about 185 words on it, and it doesn't do anything even remotely related to what it says on the card. And it was one of those situations where he played Transmute Artifact, and the guy asked, hey, can I read that? And he says, no, can I, I'm going to call a judge. Very nice. Yeah, it's pointless to read uh, cards printed in that era. It's almost just better off. Call a judge. Find out what the card actually does. And when a card is that confusing, you can often then just keep your uh, City of Traders in play for multiple turns, even though it should have been sacked. So There's also some sloppy play going around. but I think... I think the most exciting thing for me was watching another Tin Fins player make top eight. This would make the second showing in top eight um, after my Vegas performance back in March, uh, with a list actually uh, piloted in Bizarre Moxon. So, big ups to uh, Logan Crane for uh, having the balls to play a degenerate deck like that. I'm I'm fairly certain though there's been some European top eight, so I'm 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 fairly certain. Like I said. Yeah, but so no one cares about Europe. Come on, we're in America. This is true. However. That's what I thought until I got deeded like ten times. <laughs> <laughs> so what else about this uh, this top uh, sixteen here from St. Louis? Like white, like the uh, death and taxes list is seems pretty stock. I'm just opening it now. Like mind sensors, flicker wisps, Mangara. I think the the only thing that stands out to me really is his his going in on mind break trap. I mean. I'm of the opinion that if you're going to play Mind Break Trap, play four. Playing two in a deck with no card manipulation or movement, it seems a little bit strange to me. Um, you're either going to lose in the first couple of turns or you're not. So the hypergeometric distribution teaches us that you should have a maxed out number four. So maybe it was card availability, I'm not sure. But just two Mind Break Traps in the sideboard to me seems a little bit loose. If you want to commit to that card, commit to four. Maybe he didn't want to run four... Like, maybe he just wanted to split the Canonist 
uh, Mindberg Trap slot, just because, like, oh, Canonus is, like, good here, but not here, whereas, you know, Mindberg Trap... I don't know. I don't know what his thing it was. But that's he's got, sensible. He's got, like, four slots in the board. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's... You know, maybe he tested or decided, or maybe he only owns two Mindberg Traps. But that, that's the way I always feel about Mindberg Trap. Unless it's in a blue deck, of course. But in a deck like this, where your, your opening seven is going to be your opening seven, and there's not a whole lot you can do to massage it. I feel like Mainbrick Trap is a wasted sideboard slot, considering he's got the intu Enlightened Tutor to uh, to find all the hate pieces against uh, Storm Combo. Yeah, yeah. So he's literally banking on that, helping him uh, on the draw in a game where I might I might just as well run uh, White Leyline or Silence. You know, I mean, just I don't know, but uh, maybe it served him well throughout yeah. the day. One thing I found interesting about this top 16 is that the lack of uh, omniscience. You know, there's been a lot of hype recently about how this deck is unbeatable, it has good matchups all across the board, and we see a top 16 that is effectively a slice of legacy from three months ago. Um, a lot of tempo decks, some show-and-tell decks, storm combo with ad nauseum tendrils, as well as elves combo, um, even some uh, stifle knot showing up in ninth place. So, seems like a pretty, seems like a pretty balanced top sixteen, without the inclusion of omniscience. Certainly, if you were going to build a legacy gauntlet, this would be a good starting point for that. Yeah, there's except a couple Tesseret. of mid-range decks. Well, except uh, Tesseret. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think the omniscience deck. There's been some chatter online about how it's unbeatable and how uh, if everyone was playing it, it would be banned. And um, I think. That argument is a slippery slope. I mean, you can apply the argument of it's a gentleman's agreement. We don't we don't all play it to a lot of decks. Um, and if you if half the field played it, Watsi would find an excuse to ban anything. It would also percolate up into top eight simply because half the field is playing it. So I think it's a powerful deck. Um, I think it can lose to itself often. Um, and I do think there is somewhat of uh, somewhat of a gentleman's agreement not to play it. I know uh, a subsegment of the legacy population likes to have a game, you know, likes to actually have a a game of magic um, involving combat and other things. So if you kind of throw those people uh, out of the pool of people who want to play that deck or want to play legacy, you know, maybe there's just a natural uh, subpopulace that just doesn't want to play a deck like Omnitel because it's a little bit you know banal. Yeah, my own experience with show and tell decks is that they are kind of fun and powerful, but after about the fourth or fifth game where you're just doing the same exact redundant game plan, it gets a little stale. Um, doesn't feel like you have a lot of strategic depth to the deck. It's just you jam out show and tell, you resolve it, and put whatever uncastable fatty or enchantment into play and proceed to enter the scoop phase. Yeah, I exactly. agree. The the level of intellectual stimulation that you get with show-and-tell. Not to say that anybody's bad for playing show-and-tell, or no, this is not a judgment on the people who do. However, I have to agree with you, Jacob, that, you know, playing the deck is pretty damn boring. Like, I, I don't care what your flavor is, I think Omni's a little bit more interesting to play, it's a little bit more intricate, but like the whole, like, let's just jam Gristlebrand and hopefully ride it to victory, I don't know. Well, I am a man after, uh, after the part of uh, Grizzlebrand, that card is absurdly powerful and should, for its own sake, be banned from Legacy. 
So what you're saying is you enjoy drawing cards. Yeah, that, that's right. I enjoy winning with my deck in my hands, except I'm going to go through a forceful activation of multiple Grizzlebrands, uh, paying seven life, gaining some life, paying seven more life, you know, maybe tendrils for eight, draw seven more cards, discard my armor cool, loop into infinity. See, that that's fun and interesting, because each each iteration of that type of game at least leads to different challenges. Um, whereas Enter the Infinite and Omniscience, you literally just push a button, draw your deck, and proceed to win in one of three described, prescribed ways. Yeah, I feel like I can attack Tin Fins, and you and I can have a match where I'm attacking your graveyard, maybe I'm attacking your hand, you're defending your hand, you're defending your graveyard. Uh, there's a little bit of gamesmanship in there. I feel like uh, the Omnitail player who sacks into his white ley line in game two or three uh, and has the prerequisite lands and a couple of cantrips, um, you know, there's not as much game there, you know, to be had. But that's, that's personal opinion. Some people some people probably enjoy kind of setting up the combo. I don't know if there's an arbitrary way to measure the complexity or depth of a combo deck, but, uh, I mean, it really is just a, you know, kind of a two-card combo. Some could say the amount of fun you have is the amount of fun that you take away from your opponent. So... Yeah. And that's why I play blue-white. <laughs> Under that school of thought, Ponza is the best deck to play. <laughs> well, then. Uh, a couple of interesting things. Just just barely, 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 barely finishing in ninth place was an amazingly cool deck with... Uh, uh, the new Scavenge Legend. Um, and this deck also featured four, uh, the full four Death Shadows. Uh, and several Shocklands, not as a budget choice. Um, yeah, I think I looked at that mana base and it included one of each on color duel yeah. uh, from Revised and one of each on color duel from Ravnica. Yeah, Lots it's it's pretty sweet. And he ran three Varols the Scar Striped and. Um, Basically, it was a stifle knot shell that we've seen for years with uh, hand disruption, stifles, uh, days, brainstorm, and then uh, and dark confidant. Uh, but he's augmented that plan with a more traditional mid range plan of uh, uh, deathrite shamans, tarmogoyfs, and then three varals, the scar stripe. Too for our listeners who don't play EDH or whatever other format this man has been featured in. Um, each creature in your graveyard has scavenge, and scavenge cost is equal to its mana cost. Sacrifice another creature, regenerate Varal's the Scar Stripe. So, uh, if one can get a Dreadnought in his yard, uh, either by just casting the Dreadnought and allowing its trigger to consume itself, um, or I guess in a pinch, discarding it out of your own hand, or having it countered or abrupt decayed or whatever, uh, that Dreadnought now becomes a one colorless mana, put 12 plus 1 plus 1 counters on a creature you control, um, which is pretty sick to think that your, you know, your Dark Confidant could be a 14-13 uh, coming across the board. So, I'm curious to know how many times, um, the, the player's name was Gage Bunting, how many times he um, actually cast Death Shadow and let it die, and then yeah. scavenge it for 13-13. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we should uh, reach out to him and find out. I I, I am kind of a little um, shocked to see that there's no snuff out in the deck, um, possibly or even dismember just as a way as extra creature removal that can, vendetta. 
Vendetta? No, uh, Dismember. Oh, Dismember. Uh, which more or less destroys every creature in the creature-on-creature features. Vendetta fails these days because of Death Rite Shaman. I can't imagine fanning out my opening seven and seeing a Vendetta and having my opponent just go Death Rite Shaman go, me wishing to God I'd played Disfigure or Dismember or anything. <laughs> Even the lack of Gitaxian Probe is, and uh, possibility of um, Cabal Therapy makes me kind of wonder if it... There's still a lot of unexplored room with this deck. Like, I wonder if it needs this many creatures, too. Right. I don't think so. Yeah, I agree. You have seven creatures that are just mid-rangey creatures. I mean, Veral's is your combo, but uh, this is the first time I've seen a deck uh, like this that just jams Tarmogoyfs because he's good, you know? Yeah, I was going to say the Tarmogoyf seems like the most cuttable creature right there. Like, I would want Dark Confident to draw my Days Stifle nut draw all day, but, like, Tarmogoyf? Like, he's my wall? Cool. Yeah, no. Yeah, and this deck is very, very landlight. 19 with with four shamans, and I mean, and it's in the one-two range, but uh, and it's running four wasteland. So this kind of mana base, uh, you'd have to be a true pro, as they say, to the top eight with a mana base like this. Um, but let's uh, let's move on to upcoming events. <clears throat> Uh, Sean, maybe you want to talk about uh, Eternal Weekend. Uh, that's been spoiled since uh, our last podcast. Yeah, so for those of you unfamiliar with um, or haven't been to what was formerly known as Le- Legacy and Vintage Championships, um, they've been held at Gen Con for the last umpteen years. And uh, although there was some debate as to whether or not they were truly the World Championships, they were always two very fun, very well-represented tournaments. Um it was in North America anyway, probably the largest vintage tournament, uh, sorry, non-proxy vintage tournament in the country. So um, there was a good cast of characters from the vintage community, if you can call the vintage community a community. It's more like a small, semi-abandoned village, but... I was going to say, are 12, are 12 people considered a village? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, the typically it was held at Gen Con, uh, which was fun because I enjoyed going to Gen Con for a variety of other reasons, but... Um, one of the things that hindered, uh, hindered the whole process was that there's a pretty high barrier to entry just to get to Gen Con. Uh, the hotel process is expensive. Uh, you have to buy a badge to the actual con to get in. Uh, it wasn't like you could just walk up and play Vintage Champs for the entry fee. So, um, consequently, Watsi replaced Legacy and Vintage Champs at Gen Con with several other really, really great events, but there was no champs listed when the events got spoiled at the beginning of the month. So, there was a bit of a uh, a, a, an uproar from the vintage community about whether there was actually going to be a vintage champs and a legacy champs. Uh, Watsi has corrected that, and uh, they have announced Eternal Weekend, which will be held and sponsored by Top Deck Games. Um, and the owner of Top Deck Games, or one of the people who works there anyway, is a guy named Nick Koss, and he's uh, a pretty active vintage proponent. He's spent a lot of time, he's passionate about it, uh, so I think it's going to come off really, really well. So, they're lowering the barrier to entry. Now it's going to be in Philadelphia, November 1st through the 3rd. Um, we're going to have Legacy on Saturday, Vintage on Sunday. Anyone who hasn't been to Philly, super easy to get to. Trains go in there, airport. In addition, no buying a badge. Um, it's downtown in the convention center, which is a great, great, great place to stay. you got the Reading Market, all kinds of great food and drink. So I think it's going to end up uh, benefiting 
those two tournaments in the long run. I think there'll be more attendance rather than less attendance. Um, so I think it's going to be great. Sounds like a blast. I wish I could go. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I agree, though, that it is there. Uh, there is some negativity associated with the announcement. It came a little late because, like you said, the barrier to entry at Gen Con, you got to get your badge, get your hotel. Realistically, you're looking at a $500 entry fee to play in Vintage Champs, and a lot of people had already paid that fee when they made the announcement. We're not going to be at Gen Con this year, and uh, I think it would have Wizards. Uh, Wizards like to make these big announcements. You know, hey, we're doing this cool thing. But it was one of those things, they really should have done it before badges and hotels went up for sale. And there's a lot of people who are really upset that they had spent all this money and now, I mean, there will be a tournament at Gen Con, but it's not going to be Champs, and they wanted to play at Champs. Yeah, that's I mean, I'll be honest, yeah. I, was, uh, I was looking to go to the Legacy Champs, and I was going to, you know, consider pricing it out and flying out, booking a hotel, and... I'm glad that I hadn't yet because otherwise that would have been, you know, five to eight hundred dollars down the drain. I mean, to be honest, you know, Gen Con, your money's not good on the drain. I mean, we're talking first world problems here. I mean, the, there's like three vintage tournaments. One's for an uncut sheet of antiquities. The other one is a entry. Uh, first place gets entry into an eight-man draft where you draft packs from every set beginning with beta forward. So. I mean, it's not like winning those tournaments is going to give you some Homelands packs and a handshake. Um, the prizes are actually pretty sweet. So, But I agree, there are, some, there are some people who just wanted to play in Champs. I know several people that I met at Bizarre Moxon uh, who, had, who had gone to Gen Con to play Champs. Uh, actually, one of the ex-Champs I played against in Vintage at Bizarre Moxon, a Japanese guy who won it in 2010, maybe? I'll have to look. He won the Emerald. Anyway, the... So. Mox Emerald Planning. He uh, he had to cancel his travel plans, um, and for him it's a big deal. He's got to ask for time off far, far, far in advance. Obviously, the plane ticket's absurd. So yeah, to Sam's point, some people probably did get hosed who aren't interested in the rest of Gen Con. You know. um, and finally, <clears throat> on the vintage note, we have a um, proxy vintage event during the weekend of Grand Prix Las Vegas. Um, this is unofficial, so it's not connected with the official venue, but uh, it will be hosted at We Play Games, we as in W-I-I, um, just like five minutes out from Las Vegas Strip. Uh, essentially an exhibition event, um, highlighting the format. This is full proxy, so you don't have to actually uh, own any cards to play in this event. Um, I'll be out there, maybe a few uh, some internet people... I believe uh, some of the Team Serious uh, guys may swing by for uh, some vintage action. I'm probably going to test out my new uh, minus six deck in vintage, um, courtesy of Ben Perry. So it should be a blast. Uh, get to see some power being slung and um, have some fun learning the format. Are you going to play any proxies? I may proxy up uh, World Gorger Dragon. <laughs> uh, maybe even. That's painful. Yeah, I mean, it is banned in Legacy, so why would I ever touch it? And you can't get it in Korean, so it automatically disqualifies it from my collection. I could FedEx you my German dragons. They're written in the language of hate. <laughs> <laughs> um, that'll be actually on Sunday at 2pm um, at We Play Games. So if, uh, if you didn't manage to make Day 2 and uh, are not uh, satisfied with the offerings for the side events, swing by. Should be pretty good entertainment. It's $5 entry. Um, it's probably the best uh, entertainment you can get in Vegas for uh, the amount of fun you'll have. 
So come check it out. Come say hi. So with that, maybe we'll move on talk about Deathblade? Sounds good. Uh, Deathblade. So, as most of you may have seen from the last couple of results before St. Louis, Baltimore and whatever American city was in before, like, Esper Deathblade has been doing decently well. You know, top slots, I think, in Baltimore took first, eighth, uh, twelfth, and probably, you know, a good portion of the top 32 was a lot of Esper Deathblade. So we just thought we should kind of break down why this is kind of like, kind of suddenly coming up and what's up with it and how you beat it. Do you want to take a step back real quick for our listeners since we're such a new podcast um, and kind of run through the evolution of the, the blade archetype? Um, kind of kind of starts as blue white stoneforge uh, stone blade um, back when mental misstep was was legal, I think it kind of reached its zenith. Um, and then kind of moving on to Esper Stoneblade, adding black for hand disruption uh, and sometimes token generation. Yeah, we saw, we saw this about March of 2012 with um, really its breakout performance at Grand Prix Indianapolis, uh, won by Tom Martell. Uh, one of the key innovations he did there was add Lingering Souls as a uh, multi-purpose and kind of an aggro spell to go along with the equipment package. Um, and that was really successful, mostly because of the Black Splash um, really gave a lot of game against the up-and-coming Maverick from that tournament. And didn't that also win Grand Prix for uh, Denver? Was that a... Yeah, did. won by uh, Vidyanta Wijaya. Um, good local player around here. Uh, he's been hitting up the Grand Prix circuit recently, trying to make it back onto the Pro Tour. So, so we've evolved through those two, and now the, these latest iterations... Um, are now adding uh, green, a splash of green for, for Deathrite Shaman, hence the death in Deathblade. Right, and we saw this in Breakout, really, in um, the Star Sea Invitational Tournament in Atlanta around the um, early April. And this deck featured really a collection of, of three-color good stuff. Um, it's got Dark Confidant, Deathrite Shaman, Snapcaster Mage, and Stoneforge Mystic. So kind of combining a lot of the tempo strategies from uh, blue, white, and black. In addition to that, it has um, Jace the Mind Sculptor and Liliana the Veil uh, to provide some permanent sources of advantage. And then uh, one of the key features is actually lacking Force of Will. Um, part of this, I think, is more so to do with the metagame of the Invitational, which is expected to be more control and tempo heavy rather than combo. So uh, Brian B- Braun Duan made a pretty good uh, metagame call to cut Force of Will entirely from the deck um, and put it into the sideboard. And even still, you're seeing a lot of decks, they'll play Force of Will, but they're not playing the full four. Some of them play three with one of them, one in the side, or two with one in the side, or even I've, I've seen two. Um, which I guess is just, again, it's a metagame call, and what do I want to put in? Do I want a third Liliana, or do I want a Force of Will just in case? I think another feature of this deck, if you look at the one, um, it evolves a little bit when we get into Star City Nashville, but sticking with kind of its emergence in the, in the Invitational, it's it's a deck that can legitimately power out double blue spells, 
double black spells and still run wastelands, uh, which you know would be almost unheard of a few years ago. Uh, you'd get wastelanded out of every game, um, but Deathrite Shaman allows that. <clears throat> the uh, the addition that like when you were running the old Esper Stoneblade lists and you were running like eight creatures, you were running like four Stoneforges, four Snapcasters, maybe a Vendillion Clink or two, and you were just running control spells. And now, I guess they've kind of learned from all the, you know, black-green whatever mid-range decks that are all running Dark Confident and Deathrite Shaman right now that, hey, this plan's pretty darn good. How about we kind of go with this and see where we can go with it? And so far, it's been doing quite well. And and really, it's come full circle, because if you look all the way back at the traditional blue-white... Blue-white Stoneblade was really popular in Atlanta. Uh, you know, especially at our weeklies, getting 25 to 30 players, uh, a smattering of people who queued for the Pro Tour. Pretty decent competition, and Blue-White Stoneblade uh, was full-on control. It was about resolving Stoneforge and protecting it, uh, protecting it with counter magic. And now we're full circle here. If you look at uh, if you look at the list from the Invitational, um, you know, besides hand disruption, there's really no way main deck to actually protect his Stoneforge. Um, so he's relying almost entirely on uh, his thought seizes and his IOKs to clear out removal and or counter spells and resolve the Stoneforge, which is a completely different tactic than than the very first versions of these decks, which almost, besides the Mystics and the Batterskull, don't really share a lot. Well, the first versions of the decks actually needed uh, Stoneforge Mystic alive or just a creature. I mean, they were only playing eight of them, right? So, I mean... Now you've got a situation where, like, okay, if my Stoneforge Mystic dies, this is bad. However, I have other creatures to actually go pick up a piece of equipment and go for it. Whereas, you know, back in the day, it was like, well, no, I actually just stop Swords of Plowshares. And, I mean, that's why they were playing, like, Mental Misstep and, you know, Force of Will. And Some were even playing Days at one point. Like, it wasn't unheard of for, for, for Blue Whites to play Days. I, I do think now, though, it, it causes you to look at Batterskull. How many... How many times is actually yanking Batter Skull the right play? Um, you know, and just watching some video, I've seen players play you know, play this Deathblade deck with no way to protect their Stoneforge, yet they snap grab Batter Skull. Um, you know, I don't know how often that's a, a losing play or a winning play, um, but uh, it seems like without a way to protect the Stoneforge Mystic, that Batter Skull starts to kind of lose its luster a little bit. Sam, what are your thoughts on the inclusion of, let's say, Dark Confidant? versus the um, Lingering Souls that had been pretty big uh, going into the beginning of the year. Well, it's like you said, it's going back to just kind of changing up a little bit. They're both good strategies. Uh, Lingering Souls, obviously really good with equipment, um, having lots of dudes around, and you've got chump blockers and all that kind of thing. But being that, as we said, we don't have nearly as much of a control aspect, I think that makes uh, Dark Confidant a lot more important than it used to be because without control, we just got to jam creatures and spells and hope something gets through so that drawing drawing twice a turn makes uh makes everything a lot better and i've i've picked up the deck in the last week or two just to play around it and landing a bob is it's pretty much unbeatable it's they're they've got a lot to dig back from when you look at everything else you've got because you're going to play a bob you know turn two or three and you've thought seized them or inquisitioned them once or twice and they've just got a really really big hole to dig themselves out of
Okay, so I think especially in this deck, because you have, like, you have Dark Confidant, but, like, every single card you're drawing into in this deck is good. I mean, you know, with the exception of, say, like, Thoughtseize or Inquisition, you know, later in the game, I mean, you're drawing into some sort of value creature, like, so another Snowforge Mystic, Snapcaster, Dark Confidant, Deathrite Shaman, or piece of equipment, removal, or a Planeswalker. Like, that seems fine to me. Yeah, and if you look a week forward, the deck kind of evolves a bit, and, and the finals of Nashville come down to, uh, 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 it's, to call it a mirror match would be inaccurate. One one is packing Force of Will, the other one isn't. Um, one that's using Force of Will skews Liliana of the Veil, um, and has a little bit more of a stable mana base, um, and ends up uh, placing first, the one with Force of Wills, piloted by Lauren Nolan. Um, do you guys think that it's going to start to curve back since we didn't actually see uh, this past week at St. Louis. We didn't see any placements by Esper Stoneblade or Esper Deathblade. Um, do you think the way back is to put Force back in, uh, not be so greedy by playing Jace and Liliana, um, or maybe some other between? I think it's really, really hard, at least for me, to play four five mana spells in a Bob that's playing or in a deck that's playing four Bobs. And I think that might be part of the reason that once Bob came about, that Force of Will started getting cut, because five life in a deck that's trying to play a fairly long game, that's a lot to lose. I'm actually going to go ahead and disagree. Um, not, not to be a contrarian, but I did get the chance to pilot this at a local event, and our local events are typically run over with combo decks. So cogn being cognizant of that, I included the Force of Wills, understanding that Hey, this Bob's probably going to deal me a lot of damage. But at the same time, that's what Batterskull helps to offset. So, landing a Dark Confidant and a Stoneforge Mystic together almost guarantees that you set up a, kind of a, a free card drawing, even if you do flip over those Force Wheels. And because of those Dark Confidants, you're now guaranteeing that you have extra cards in your hand, making the disadvantage from Force Will a, an acceptable drawback. And you can be a little bit more liberal in going and getting Batter Skull if you have Force to back up uh, your Mystic. Whereas in the other list, if you have an IOK or Thought Seize or Removal, and you just play Mystic blind into Batter Skull uh, and let it get swords or destroyed, uh, you know you're you're kind of stuck with a Batter Skull in your hand until you can brainstorm it away or uh, maybe inevitably get to five man. I think we reviewed a, a match on camera last week where uh, this deck was a little bit mana tight. Um, you know, really had no hope of actually hard casting a batter skull, um, and so so the list with force of will actually gives you some ways to protect your mystic. It makes batter skull more of a real plan. Yeah, that seems like a pretty fair assessment. So, what do we think the weaknesses are of this deck? How do we attack this and uh, make sure that as it's becoming a larger and larger part of the meta, how do we make sure that it's not beating us? So one thing I noticed <clears throat> particularly about this deck is it has um, a relatively hard time against the red deck. Um, if you take a look at the mana base, there's not a single basic land included um, most of the time. And even some of the time, two or three uh, basic lands are not going to be enough to, uh, to offset, for instance, price progress. So uh, typically when these big blue decks... Um, in Legacy, start cropping up and three and four color and start splashing all these off-color um, good stuff cards. A, a very timely bolt, bolt, bolt 
Price of Progress, Fire Blast you is more than enough to just put them away. I think this deck is also really weak in the fact that, I mean, I felt like when Esper Stoneblade was deck, it was it was a pretty good control deck in the format. There are very few other control decks that were doing well because you had Lingering Souls, you had equipment. I mean, you know, 43 lands and maybe like Agrolome or something were a bit better, but they're pretty fringe, right? So this moving towards, in the spectrum of aggro to control, moving more towards the mid-range, I think there may be other mid-range decks that are doing it better. Like, for example, Jund with Punishing Fires. Like, all, you've, all you have are X for one, X ones. So, like, Dark Confidence is a 2-1. Death Return is a 1-2. Snapcaster, 2-1. Stoneforge Mystic, 1-2. And if you're playing the Clique, it's a 3-1. So, I mean, Punishing Fires is getting pretty good. Even the Grim Lava Mancer from both Burn or Jund um, can put this deck away pretty quickly. Yeah, exactly. You're also running a, a decent amount of 2s. Sweepers like Engineer Explosives are pretty good against it, especially if you can recur them. Um, and I think the mana base. They, uh, the, the list that uh, Baltimore and the uh, 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 the two lists at Nashville uh, both move to have one of each basic besides a forest in their base. So um, they can play a little bit around with basics um, to get some breathing room against Wasteland or Price of Progress. But I, I, th I still think attacking their mana base... Uh, you know, is a vulnerability. This deck can't can't necessarily establish four to five lands out on the on the field. You know, without being vulnerable to wasteland, like a a deck like Miracles could, uh, which is sort of has an impervious mana base. I think another way to attack this deck is, uh, I mean, like we we're talking about the creatures, we're talking about the mana base, but I mean, this this is primarily a creature equipment deck. So I mean, if you're either better in the control element or just better in the creature combat you're just going to clean up. The Jace is here if it's like, oh, you have you know, your Batter Skull out, you have your Dark Confidant, you have a Death Rage element, and the Jace is kind of sitting behind these guys and, you know, you're fate sealing them away. It's not like the Jace is the all-in plan like in the other control decks, like say a Bug Landstill deck or something like that. Or a deck with Lingering Souls. Like, this deck doesn't really have a way to defend Jace that well. All these dudes are terrible. I mean, they're not good blockers, you know? I agree. I think um, Jason this deck acts more as a tempo uh, recovery. So either bouncing your opponent's creatures to connect with yours to activate GTA or deal some damage with Batterskull and um, you know really draw some extra cards with the Brainstorm ability just to recover uh, and, and clean up the card quality. I think a card like Thalia is actually really good against this deck. We saw in the replay last week that I mean even though uh, the Deathblade deck was, you know, kind of wavering on their mana, I mean, they're a deck that needs to be able to cast, you know, Brainstorm, uh, you know, a Thoughtseize, a Ponder, Sword Splashers. Like, being able to tax them like that with, say, a Thalia, which also has First Strike, which is going to be insane against all of their small guys. Like, that's where you want to be. Creatures with First Strike, creatures with Trample, tax effects, um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, she also beats all of their men in combat, basically. So, in addition to being a tax effect, they can't block her very, you know, there's very few profitable blocks that they can make against, uh, uh, against, uh, Thalia. Um. And let's not, let's not underestimate also the ability of a good combo pilot to defeat this deck. Um, really the only tools that the Esper Stoneblade deck, um, and even the, the Deathblade decks, have to fight 
good combo in the first game is three Force of Wills on the draw, and you know only five discard spells on on the play. After sideboard, it gets a little bit better. You you go up to four Force of Wills. You go up to uh, maybe a few Spell Piers, Fluster Storm, Orthoxes, extra discard and meddling mage. But I mean, as as we as you may know, as as a Maverick pilot, if you're trying to like sit there and be like, oh, I have a few little things to try and disrupt the combo deck. I mean, they're just gonna go get their you know their bounce spell for your meddling mage, or they're gonna duress you before they go off or silence. Like, I feel like this deck against a silence, like if the test player starts to silence you and starts to go off, you've got your one force of will. And you're like, oh, yeah. cool, cool story. story. Yeah, I mean the 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 decks that fare well against combo are usually those that can can attack their hand and combat them on the stack. Like when you have both of those uh, stuff for combo to win, when you've got uh, so little ways to interact on the stack, it's it's, it's going to be tough to to deal with a deck like Tez that can silence you and just do what it wants. Um, but you know, it's this. We went back all the way to the beginning. This this deck was a metagame call, right? So. Um, Eschewing Force of Will was the first sign that that the initial pilots didn't really, uh, you know, didn't didn't think combo was going to be a factor. I think that's a really good point um, regarding that this this deck's not going to excel in those matchups where you do need those Force of Will. This is essentially trying to be a blue based mid range board control type of deck, and for for that purpose, it's fantastic. If you're going into a metagame filled, let's say, with Sneak Show combo decks and Storm combo decks, you're likely not going to perform as well as you'd hope. And I still feel like against the decks that are against running against other BGX decks, like you're running against Jund or you run against Junk, like it's not like the easiest matchup. It it is not as easy of a matchup as it was when you were playing Esper Stoneblade, like because you were a better control deck. Now you're playing, like, the mirror match, and, you know, like, Junk has, like, Tarmogoyf, and, like, if you're sitting there on your Snapcaster Mage as your blocker, like, you're only going to get so far with that. Right. In a lot of ways, this deck is blue Junk. I mean, if, especially if you look at the... If you look at the ace, That's ace, exactly what I've been calling it. You know? Tombstone. Yeah. Tombstone just just blue junk. good stuff thrown together. Yeah, the 8th place deck in uh, Baltimore actually... I had no, I think it had a Miser's Counterspell main, but it actually ran Tarmogoyf. I guess he said to himself, well, as long as I'm in green, I'll I'll play a decent creature, uh, you know, on the back of all these other guys I've got. Um, but it still ran a bunch of spells with double blue, like Jace. I think he ran the full four Jace, Click. And, and Cleeks. Yeah, so, you know, it really was just blue junk. It kind of reminds me a lot of the variations in, we saw in the Tempo decks about uh, four or five years ago. Essentially, you had the blue shell, which is Force Will, Brainstorm, Ponder, and... Um, days. And Days, yeah, of course. Um, and you had to pick between, essentially, am I going to play red for Lightning Bolt, or am I going to play black for Hand Disruption? And ultimately, out of that um, conflict, the red version, which we know as Tempo Threshold or Canadian Threshold, won out, just because it's much more efficient... And it has much more reach than the black variations. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised to see a red version of the Death Rite Shaman deck splashing white 
um, or even blue, emerge as victorious as we see the evolution of this deck continue. I wouldn't be surprised to see me sleeving up some Flood Moons, because I'm sick of this. I agree 100%. <laughs> Going back to, uh, we said that Red was a big weakness. Between Blood Moon and being able to Lightning Bolt their turn one Deathrite Shaman, that's, I, I agree that the mana base is 100% what you attack, and if you're dropping down a Blood Moon and they've got two basics and their only other uh, mana producer you Lightning Bolted, they're in a heap of trouble. And this deck I mean, absolutely caves to Chalice on one as well. Like, any any Dragon Stompy deck that could actually get a, a slightly decent draw against these, these decks, I think, would blow them out. I mean, also, too, just having a deck that, like, totally mucks their creature plan or is the better Jace deck. Like, for example, Bug Land still against this deck is a joke. I mean, like, I understand, like, you have to get up to Pernicious Deed and you have to actually survive until you deed them. But, I mean, it's not hard to be, like, deed, deed on two. Like, oh, oops, your entire team is gone. Yeah, you're not having to deed for for five or anything here. And, uh, uh, you know, standstill against them is pretty brutal, too. Well, I'm definitely hoping to see uh, the evolution of this deck continue over the next coming weeks. Um, I know M14 might change things up, either with a ban or restriction, or uh, just new printings might show, um, might throw some new gasoline into the fire. So, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if if there's a possibility that I mean, if this deck is gonna you know start to evolve more, like does does Knight of the Reliquary become a factor again? Why? Mazavith? Shutting off their equipment and Tower of the Magistrate are very, very good. And wasting them out. Yeah, exactly. again, going back to their land, yeah. Yeah. I think one one thing that definitely helps out the the fight against Knight of the Reliquary is the abundance of Deathrite Shaman. Um, one of the key features and one of the key strengths, really, of Knight of the Reliquary is being able to grow large while still being able to be disruptive. And the more you waste your opponent who has Deathrite Shaman, the more fuel you're giving them to continue to produce the mana that you just destroyed. So I feel like it's a little bit of a challenge between Deathrite Shaman versus Knight of the Reliquary, and of course the cheaper, more efficient answer, um, efficient card is going to win out in the long run, as we see in the metagame play out. I can't ever remember a time, and I'm, and I'm old, older than Dirt, I can't ever remember a time in, in Eternal Magic when the tension between uh, attacking the graveyard as a resource uh, and building your deck with the graveyard as a resource has been so... There's been so much tension between those two kind of overarching plans. Like, uh, obviously over the years, the value of the graveyard as a zone has gone up. I mean, that's a, that goes without saying. But I think we're reaching an interesting point now where... Uh, where you're making this conscious choice as you begin to design a deck uh, around whether or not the graveyard's going to be a resource. And if it's not, you have access to the most powerful, you know, hosers of that zone ever printed, right? I mean, uh, you know, rest in peace kind of being the, the poster child now. Uh, but it's just interesting around so many decks now that are just relying on, on the graveyard, um, you know, Maybe, maybe, maybe the rest in peace helm deck. Maybe that's well positioned if 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 for Deathblade starts to kind of climb in popularity. Um, it's just interesting. It have, there's so much tension between wanting to actually use your graveyard as a resource and uh, having such simple, powerful tools to just completely nullify that strategy. Um, but of course, cutting yourself off in, in the meantime. So, 
That's a really interesting point, Sean, and really when, when you think about it that way, it's kind of surprising that you don't see more graveyard hate in sideboards and even in mainboards when it's, you're right, it's kind of, there's a lot of stuff that's broken down. Do you use the graveyard or not? And if you're not using it, why would you not want to hose it? In, in the Night of the Reliquary point, like, if I was putting together a, a green-white aggro deck from the ground up now, I might eschew the graveyard altogether and just play play Rest in Peace because it punishes so many decks. Uh, maybe play Loxodon Smiter because once I've punished your graveyard against a Rug deck or any other Tarmogoyf deck, uh, you know, my Smiter is going to be the biggest guy on the board. Uh, and I've got game against you know, discard strategies. It's just interesting. It's, it's, such a, it's such a ubiquitous resource now that uh, maybe attacking it in your main deck uh, it could be a strategy for taking it out of tournament if you guess the you guess the metagame right. Of course, it's complete or, blanks against Omnitel and some other things, but... Or, if people are assuming that their Deathrite Shamans are enough to keep somebody's graveyard intact, perhaps playing Dredge and just running over them yeah. is also a legitimate strategy. Yeah, yeah. If you look at these decks, I mean, they've... they've uh, you know, you're talking about Deathrite and, you know, two Surgicals in the, in the, in the sideboard, uh, which is not enough to beat Dredge. Look, <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm on my third glass of scotch. I'm like starting to lose it. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> All right. Well, well, on that note, we can rant about Modern Masters. Man, I loved sitting in the store watching people open Modern Masters and not get shit. <laughs> I mean, oh, well, they were selling them for 15 US dollars, and there was a kid who pulled Red, red Poop Dragon from Kamigawa. I don't even know his name. And like a mole drifter for fifteen dollars, and I broke it to him that he could have just bought fifteen red poop dragons for the price of the pack he just paid, and perhaps made a hat out of them. Because I mean, it's basically home run or 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 just complete wipeout with those packs it's when you when your when your retailer is charging fifteen dollars anyway. I mean, I'm yeah. getting the box for like two, so it's not too bad, like slightly above MSRP. So, I mean, like, I think I'm still winning, but the people who are paying, like, 300 a box are just, like... Definitely. Um, I actually considered getting a box because I really want to draft the set, but you can't draft the set unless one person owns all the cards, because otherwise everyone's going to take the best stuff, and that's not nearly as interesting as if everyone tries to build a really badass deck. So I told my friends, uh, with regards to the set, I'm only going to pay retail. So I will only pay six ninety five per pack, and any booster box, I will only pay $170. Um, any price above that, it's just flat-out gouging, considering most stores get the boxes for about $80. I mean, I can't put into words how small of a crap I give about an English-language, new-bordered abortion reprint set. I mean, this is like... If, you, if you're playing with these cards, you're, you're, you're just... I don't you're know. poor. You're just poor. It's fine. I, I just... really feel like we should just save this for when we get to the recording part of it, because we're all already kind of just ranting about it. Fuck it, let's just have this be the session, and yeah, I will attack it on at the end as, like, part. freebies. Perfect. I mean, honestly, uh, if somebody beats me with a fucking new frame Tomb Stalker, I might just fucking rip it up, go behind the goddamn counter, <laughs> and buy them a future site one, and then fucking concede, because, I mean, it's just humiliating. Now, I do have to say that it is kind of odd seeing an Archimeba in a new frame. Considering I haven't actually seen it yet. It, it looks... It's cool. You're, you're like, it's oh, odd. it looks... You're not used to it. Same with Termogoyf. You see it and you're like... The Termogoyf is different because it's different art, but like the new Narcomoeba, you see it and you're like, oh, it's a Narcomoeba, but something's off about that Narcomoeba. Yeah, it's not Russian. <laughs> well, that too. I, I'm pretty, pretty sad panda about the fact that it's not in Russian. 
or Korean or anything. It's it's yeah, just giant what the fucks. However, M14 scavenging ooze, Russian scavenging, scavenging ooze. ooze. Yes, it's going to be in every language now. That's an interesting pimp question like typically you want the oldest set symbol, but sometimes in that case you have to choose an inferior language. So I run Germ German oozes cuz they're basically the most pimp ones I think you can get. So now I'm going to face a what we would call a tough life choice in that uh, I'll have access to Korean and Russian oozes, but they will have some fucking god-awful M14 symbol on them. So, Alright, so I know we said we don't want to do the speculation game, but I'm just curious, if a regular ooze was at 20 before this announcement, what is a foil foreign ooze going to end up going for six months or a year from now? $100. Yeah. It's usually about it's usually about two or three for a, a desired foreign language, and then usually double for foil. Agree. But yep. it is exciting to have like a foil scavenging news for uh, those who enjoy Pokemon cards. But uh, those who know me and those who probably don't know me personally but know me by name or even just by photos of my collection, Korean, snap, uh, Korean scavenging news will actually be updated to my now decrepit Maverick list. Maybe you can get them altered and have the, uh, the Plane Chase logo painted over the M14 logo. <laughs> At this point, I'm just considering taking a white eraser and removing the expansion symbol altogether. Just having a big white blur <laughs> over the, uh, the expansion symbol. This is not the expansion symbol you're looking for. That's all. This section labeled, Why the guys on Everyday Eternal are better than you. <laughs> <laughs> Elitist assholes 101. I mean, I'm so Seems fucking fine. bored with buying cards and like have so little left that I want to buy that I just buy a new playmat every fucking week. I mean... That's true fucking boredom with with collecting cards. I mean, I'm addicted to inked playmats. I may get a playmat of me playing on a playmat as my next playmat. <laughs> <laughs> Playmatception. Or actually, I, I think it would be fun if you got enough that you had a different one for every game. Like, you finish a game be like, excuse me one moment, I have to get my game 2 playmat out. God, how sick would so that be? You switch from I have like... to get my game 2 playing against countertop one. That's a different one than my game 2 playing against junk. One time I, I was playmat. playmat. It goes from Terminator Playmat to Commando Playmat. Yeah, I can move from movie to movie, you know what I mean? Like, start off with a New Hope Playmat, move into Empire, and then finish off with Jedi <laughs> for, for a possible Game 3. And when you just get really pissed, that's when you take out the prequels? Yeah, well, I give them to my opponent if he doesn't have a Playmat. I give him some fucking humiliating, you know, Anakin as a, as a boy savior Playmat. And then Game 2, I give him a Jar Jar Binks Playmat as Senator. And then game three, I give him one-armed Anakin crawling up the gravel, screaming at Obi-Wan playmat. Now this is pod racing. Have you thought about a Furby playmat just to give all of your opponents? No, no. I, I had this, uh, this quasi-hentai porn playmat that I got at Gen Con. So I'm sitting down at Vintage Champs, and I turn around, and I lost my playmat. I had a Galactus playmat forever. And it's literally like... 10 minutes till I gotta sit down and play another match and I'm terrified because I lost my playmat. Luckily I didn't lose any cards or anything like that but so anyone who's been to Gen Con knows that it's like the running of the obese I mean trying to run anywhere in Gen Con is impossible because you're just surrounded by human meat. So I run out of the collectible card game hall and I, I uh, sorry the collectible card game hall into the dealer hall there's a, there's a direct door there and I just go to the first booth that I find there and it's uh uh, dude who did uh, Death Rite Shaman, uh, Steve Argyle. He's right there. Yeah. And 
unfortunately, he can't sell anything with his actual magic art anymore. They've, they've disallowed him from uh, selling playmats with, like, the card art on it. So I just grabbed the first playmat I see, which is this blood-covered Japanese cum slut with, like, a samurai sword. <laughs> and she's, like, laying on the ground, licking the blood off the sword. And I'm like, how much? He's like, $20. He's like, do you want me to sign it? I was like, no. This... <laughs> This is not gonna be something. I'm not gonna yeah, validate this piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, but I played the rest of Vintage Champs with this basically fucking hentai porn match, and it was, uh, but it was pretty humiliating. But anyway, I later traded it because you know 90% of the Magic playing community actually enjoys watching women come in a bucket. So, do we want to talk a little bit about Grand Prix Las Vegas though? We didn't really talk about it before. You guys can talk about it. I don't play sealed, uh, and I only bet on sports. It seems like there's a lot of people who are going to Grand Prix Vegas just from looking at Twitter, listening to podcasts, looking at websites, that it's becoming more and more of a Grand Prix where it's, hey, Vegas is a cool place to go, so why don't we hit it up for this Grand Prix? I mean, uh, I was listening to um, Brainstorm Brewery this afternoon, and they they got a house specifically so that they could have a bunch of people over and have a big party and have, like, drunk draft and all sorts of stuff, and it seems like there's a lot of people who are saying, yeah, I'm going to Ve GP Vegas, I don't want a day two. I want to party with all my other Magic friends. And because of that, um, it's very quickly looking like this may blow the previous GP record out of the water just because Vegas is a city people want to be in. I think as of today, we've had over 2,000 people pre-register for this tournament, which puts it at the third largest Grand Prix, and it's not even... Happened a day. It, it's not even two days before the tournament. Well, it's trying to beat out Grand Prix Charlotte. And for those not aware, the city of Charlotte's cultural zenith is the fucking NASCAR Hall of Fame. So, I mean, it's not like it's trying to, you know, anyway. I mean, it's Las Vegas. It's a heck of a lot nicer place to go than Charlotte. And I've also heard that be, based on Charlotte, uh, Wizards has learned a lot about how to handle something this big. And they're trying to at least do a much better job in terms of staffing and how they're going to be able to fit that many people in one tournament and things of that nature, which is good because we don't want to see people starting to get into this attitude of, oh, a Grand Prix that's going to be big. Well, I don't want to go to that. It's going to be a clusterfuck. On that, on that note, I actually want to, if I was Wizards and seeing these tweets and reports about how many people are going to be showing up to this Grand Prix, I'd be thinking in my mind, how can I improve the tournament experience for the players? Step one, put the tw uh, the pairings on Twitter don't have Which to. Which Star City already does. Star City does, but Grand Prix policy um, dictates that you can't actually publish them on to online media um, outside the Wizards website, which is updated like four hours after the fact. Um, but by doing so, you improve the congestion that you would have at the pairings boards. Um, one interesting thing that I did see at Grand Prix. Denver, and I'm not sure how prevalent it is across Grand Prix, um, is to essentially have a scrolling um, digital board showing pairings. Yes, yeah. I saw that. I remember that. And, that's and is that the same scroll that's built into the Wizards Reporter? Because the Reporter already has that functionality built in, but most people don't use it because it requires a projector or a giant screen or something of that nature. I'm not sure specifically, but uh, I imagine if they already know that they're going to have over 2,000 players that renting a projector for $100 for the weekend or buying one for $100 for the weekend would be good enough. What is this projector you speak of? Where is this technology available? Um, <laughs> the second suggestion I would 
I would have for Wizards is to split the main event into two day one events. Um, essentially, have a red pod and a green pod, or a that's blue what pod, they did. Whatever in Charlotte. Cars. Yeah. Um, essentially, separated two separate tournaments that both feed into a day two. Um, this will allow segmenting um, the tournament population and improve the, the essentially the round turnover. So essentially, double up on the scorekeepers, on the judging staff, so they don't have to run from one end to the room or the other. Um, Considering we're already at 2,000 people, there's going to be 1,000 tables. Um, it's going to be quite a challenge running across the room, literally, well, they did to it find at Charlotte your because table. The, uh, the software capped out, and so they did it by necessity at Charlotte, and uh, it was it was fine once they did it. The issue, of course, was that they hadn't planned to do it and thus had to kind of switch gears. So um, once they had Charlotte running, it was fine, but I, there was almost a two-hour gap between when the tournament, quote-unquote, started and when people actually got got started playing. So, uh, you know, had they had they known before that the software was going to cap out, I think they would have followed your suggestion initially, which was breaking into two separate flights on the same day. Even even a third pod if you have enough um, floor space. It was good for me because the line for Therese Nielsen was zero while everyone was opening their dreadful gate crash packs or whatever garbage sealed was being played that day. So I was able to get through the line like three times while they were all wallowing in their tears. So. Now the third point I would have for Wizards, and this is probably on the questionable side, um, considering we're in the city of Las Vegas and their drinking laws allow for open containers in public, I would recommend opening up a bar in the venue. Now, make uh, some money. Yeah, make some money. You know, people are going to drop out after the first round, after they open their foil goif, plus regular goif. I mean, it's bound to happen. There's going to be over 12,000 packs of Modern Masters opened up at this tournament. Um, I hope I hope they have enough. Uh, at $10 I, a pack at many stores. Uh, $10 a pack just for entry to the Grand Prix. Um... I think the vendors are go- the ones who are going to really make out like bandits. Limited limited Grand Prix is, is just designed to feed all the extra card stock into the vendor's booth. But um, to make the player's life interesting, and considering the, uh, the alcohol laws in Vegas, open up a bar, open up the Mox Cafe, who the fuck gives a shit? I mean, the and, other thing uh, that Las Vegas has, has an infinite supply of is strippers. I mean, you can bring strippers. Yeah, that's what well. I was thinking. If we're already opening the bar, let's bring some adult entertainment into this. Have Pod B be the 18-plus pod. Yeah. Top 8 gets lap dances before they play, and you carry on. I, I see Wizards is continuing their trend of poorly chosen locations to host during the hottest day of the year. La- last year in the Grand Prix Atlanta was... A- Sean, it was the hottest day on record in like 20 years during that weekend. Yeah, it was hot as balls. Uh, I remember going out on that night and it was like 96 degrees and about 96% humidity at and, midnight. And you're in downtown Atlanta, so it's like the fucking walking dead when you go out on Peachtree and like 60 homeless people just descend on you like fucking lice. Well, on the subject of them doing it on a shitty weekend again, um, it's been three or four years since we've had a GP in Houston. And the reason they cited was that the last time they did a GP in Houston, it had bad turnout. 
Well, day two of the GP was Easter Sunday. Wah, wah. Wow. Which, which I skipped out on going to church with my family because they had a vintage side event. <laughs> hey, at least you know your priorities. Yeah, they were going to have that legacy. The last legacy that Atlanta had with Star City was the Invitational, I think. And there was some fervor about, you know, oh, that was at the time they had just announced that um, some Sundays weren't going to be legacy. So people were watching the, the turnouts for these pretty closely. Well, that Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. And the Falcons were, you know, one win away from getting to the Super Bowl. Well, if the Falcons had won the, won the NFC Championship and gone to the Super Bowl, the legacy turnout in Atlanta for that weekend would have been dick. And, like, you know, knowing the people there, they would have looked at it and said, oh, there was no turnout. Anyway. What do, you, what do you all think of that, just in general? I, I, you know, I think that standard, standard setup is just fucking miserable. I mean, at least give me modern on Sunday. Some... Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, I mean, when I started Legacy back in 2005, I remember, like, East Coast was the Legacy stronghold. I mean, it was North Virginia and the Northeast. So, what did Wizard, uh, what did Star City decide to announce today? That they're replacing the standard Legacy model of their Star City Open in Worcester, which is, like, Boston Welcome proper. to Worcester! Dollar twenty-five, please! Worcester Boston, you know? They're replacing that standard um Oh, you're always setup. open on your fucking thought seas, you fucking sack. <laughs> With sealed deck on Saturday and standard on Sunday. Oh. What? Why not double legacy? Were they trying I to know, right? the money they can make? So I, I, I'm tweeting out to um, Mr. Orange, at Mr. Orange, a.k.a. Evan Irwin, Saying, um, you realize that this area has, like, one of the highest concentration of legacy players, probably in the United States. Like, if there's anywhere to host a legacy open, it's in the Northeast. Double fucking legacy. God. You know uh, what? You know what? Wait, hold on, hold on. Triple legacy. Yeah, Triple Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Saturday, Screw the draft Sunday. open. Like... One, run it. Like, one thing I keep I keep noticing about these event turnouts, especially for Standard, is you're getting, like, 300, 400 people in a Standard tournament. Now, when I'm thinking about, hey, what am I going to do on a Saturday afternoon? Yeah, I'll play in a, a 10, 11-round Standard event for maybe getting top 64 for 50 bucks. That doesn't sound like a, a fun afternoon in my eyes. Um... I mean, you're casting Think Twice twice, too. The format is just fucking dog shit. So, I mean... Well, I mean, that's not to say anything about the standard format itself. It's just, you're playing in a 10 to 11 round tournament, and you have to essentially do very, very, very well in order to even prize. Or, you play in an 8 round legacy, go like 5-3, pass go, collect $50, like... That's my idea of a wonderful Sunday afternoon. That's right. I think one of the biggest draws to the Legacy Opens is that they're going to be relatively small compared to a standard or sealed deck event. But you'll be able to get out of there at a reasonable time, probably with some cash in hand. So now we're going to go into the wild, crazy, ban and restricted list speculation. No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Jace is not getting unbanned in Modern. Just That's... throwing that out there. No, definitely not. at $140. Why doesn't Wizards want me to have, like, a Thopter Foundry, Sensei Divining Top, 
Stoneforge Mystic deck. Why don't they want me? Is that well, too good? <laughs> first of all, blue is not allowed to be good. So instead of printing cards that are good in blue, we just have to ban every combo ever. And so if wait, we unban so Chase, the blue might be good. So when is Snapcaster Mage getting banned in Legacy in Modern? Tomorrow? That's not part of any big combo yet, is it? The combo is Snapcaster Mage Lightning Bolt. That's the fucking combo. <laughs> I could turn it into a combo. All I need is one Grizzlebrand. I, you know, Gosh, Modern gets a bad rap. I, you know, I'm I'm an eternal get off my lawn player, but I occasionally go play Modern and I occasionally have fun just because I can build. Whatever that reminds me, I, want. I played Modern for the first time ever. I knew nothing about the format, and uh, guy at my store said, "We need an eighth player. I'll pay for your entry, and you can have my extra deck." So I played. And I uh, split top four. <laughs> yeah, it's Skill just format. it's a fun mid rangey format. Nothing you rarely get blown out. I mean, you rarely blow anybody out. But I lost. I lost one game to Pod where I just didn't know one of his cards was part of the combo. I, I took. I looked at Modern from the eyes of a skeptic, saying, "This is a format that's not really got much going for it. It's a bunch of mid range decks. What's the most powerful thing I can do?" So three days before Grand Prix San Diego. I stumble upon a Grizzlebrand deck, and I said, "Throw caution to the wind. Let's let's see what happens." End up doing day two with a Grizzlebrand deck. Get recorded on a camera match. Turn two kill. Oh, you have Path to Exile. That's too bad. I have the modern version of Force of Will. I'm gonna Ace of Charm, pitch a Spirit Guide to help cast this on turn two. After I reanimated Grizzlebrand, attacked, drew 21 cards, attacked and again, and attacked again. Wow. See, this is this is my my modern experience was looking over somebody's deck list and they were like, Matt, from your legacy experience, what could I do to improve my modern deck? And I'm like, okay, well, this deck needs Sensei's Divining Top. <laughs> and it needs to not they're play like, Shocklands. They're like, no. I'm like, okay, Jace. Definitely needs some Jace. No. Ponder. No. <laughs> Thopter Foundry. No. How, how about Preordain? Just like something to dig. No, no that's banned too. And every single card I listed, they were like, Matt, all those cards are banned. I'm like, I don't want to play this format. And I just gave <laughs> well, them back the deck. My, my problem with Modern is I've bought two or three decks, and they just keep getting banned. And um, I know that I'm. there's many people who are doing this who are saying, I'm not going to get into a format where a new deck gets banned every time a new list comes out. So um, I think that's where Wizards is really going to have to actually say, like, okay, we need to print answers instead of banning things because eventually this ban list will be as big as the list of things that's illegal. Yeah. I don't know. The format definitely needs some work. I think it it needs to be a little bit better regulated. Uh, just, I mean, Legacy has its own problems, but Modern is just like, holy fucking shit, what are you kidding me? All these fun cards? Really? I can't have any of these. Let's, let's, let's keep hoping that uh, Wizards does what they did with modern oh m14 and at least print very modern playable cards that have seen play in legacy back reintroduce them back into modern Uh, i think that's the best approach going forward well guys it's been real my dog's about to shit on my foot so i'm gonna have to bail (laughs) yeah i think i gotta go too so listeners thank you very much for listening to us rant if you guys want to contact us, we do have a Twitter account um, at EternalMTG, um, and also email. Sam, I think uh, you have the details for that one. The email is everydayeternalcast at gmail.com, and I'm on Twitter every day now, and we're, I don't know if everyone else is checking the email, but I've been poking at it, at least for now. 
So hopefully we can get some uh, interaction and get some ideas about what people want to hear us talk about. Shoot us some questions, uh, feedback, concerns, uh, or maybe even just tell Sean to shut the fuck up. Yeah, that's cool. That can, yeah. We try, but he doesn't. <laughs> anyway, see you all and have a good one. All right, adios, everyone. Adios. Yep. Yeah.